Mark Levinson is an economist and the author of The Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller and the World Economy Bigger. This is Mark Levinson. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Great. Uh, I am here with Mark Levinson. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Glad to be with you. Uh, so you have written a book, The Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller and the World Economy Bigger. Um, I, I have recommended this book to people before, and it is a fascinating read, and people listening to this should definitely check it out. Um, but a lot of people, when I try to describe it to them, a lot of people lose interest the moment they hear it's all about the riveting uh, world of shipping containers. Um, but that, that they, they really should develop an interest, I think. W- why should people care about this story? Why did you care about it? You know, Duncan, I had the same experience when uh, I was writing the book. I would tell people that I was working on a book about the shipping container and they wouldn't know what to say because it sounds boring, frankly. Right. Uh, and if you think about it uh, as a thing, it is pretty boring. A shipping container is a hunk of metal with a wooden floor. But what makes it important is what it does. Uh, The shipping container made it possible to expand world trade enormously. And that led to what we now think of as globalization. Uh, The level of international trade we have today simply wouldn't have been possible without the shipping container. And that's why it's so important for people to understand. Definitely. And I think what is so interesting about this as a story is that the invention of the shipping container itself is perhaps not straightforward, but the the idea of it is just a a rectangular prism that seems like a, a pretty simple invention, but the effects of it were so profound. And the mythology that's kind of developed around it in part uh, on behalf of Malcolm McLean's, uh, the inventor, uh, his own efforts, the mythology that's developed around it is that uh, it was invented by a, a, a humble truck driver who, who made this possible, um, which isn't entirely false, but it's slightly misleading. He, he, he owned a, a trucking company, right? I mean, he was a successful, shrewd capitalist. Who, who was this guy, Malcolm McLean? Well, let me say first that he did not invent the shipping container, uh, nor did anyone else. Uh, The idea that it would be smart to take a bunch of small boxes and packages and parcels and put them into a big box uh, so you don't have to handle them as much is is a pretty common sense idea. And in fact, it had been around since the 1700s. Uh, various types of shipping containers were used in uh, Europe uh, in the 19th century. You can actually find a photograph of a wooden shipping container being uh, hoisted with a winch from a a railroad flatbed car onto a horse cart for delivery. Uh, So this was not a new concept. The thing is, none of these approaches to using a shipping container uh, was profitable. Nobody made any money doing it. Uh, There was the problem of, well, where do you get the container? And often they had to be custom built. And then there was the problem of, well, what do you do with it once you've delivered the goods? 
who else is going to use the container? Do you just send it back where it came from? Uh, if it was a wooden container, do you just break it up for firewood? And then there were some regulatory problems in most countries, including the United States. Uh, things like trucking and railroading were heavily regulated, and that included the uh, rates that uh, carriers could charge for freight. And so when in the 1930s, a US railroad uh, tried to use shipping containers, the Interstate Commerce Commission said that the rates it could charge for those shipping containers depended on what was inside the containers. And, and the railroad, of course, didn't know what was inside the containers. And that was the end of that. So there had been experiments going on for a long time uh, about how shipping containers might be used, but nobody had come up with a way to make them profitable. And that was really Malcolm McLean's insight. Um, McLean had built one of the biggest trucking companies in America. Most of his routes ran between the Carolinas and the Northeast. And in the years after World War II, he was concerned that increasing traffic congestion due to the boom in auto sales was delaying his trucks. So his thought was that maybe some of those trucks could be put on ships and sent along the coast between North Carolina and New York City rather than going over the road. He worked on this idea. Uh, he realized it didn't make any sense to put the entire truck on a ship. So then he thought about putting the, a trailer with wheels on the ship. Uh, that didn't really make any sense either. And then he thought about, suppose you just take the, the box off the chassis, you know, basically the cargo compartment and put it on a ship. And that's what uh, he eventually tried to do. He bought an existing uh, ship line, a small one that had the legal right to sail along the US East Coast. And uh, he used that as his vehicle for getting into the container shipping business. He had to sell out his trucking business because the regulators wouldn't let him do uh, both things at once. And so he bet his fortune on this new untested technology of uh, shipping containers. Yeah, I, I think you, you said in the book, he had something like uh, 20 million or however many tens of millions of dollars. And that was the equivalent of a hundred or so million in two thousand four dollars. So th this guy was quite quite wealthy, and he he bet it all, and said uh, something like, "You've got to be entirely committed." The, the, he he strikes me as being kind of a, a restless um, restless with ambition and and striving sort of character. No, he was in it for the thrill of the game. Okay, he had plenty of money because his trucking company had been very successful. He could have retired on that and played golf for the rest of his life, but that's not what he liked to do. His challenge was developing businesses, developing ideas. He was really an, an entrepreneur at heart. And so he sold off his trucking company, he bet everything on this untested container technology, and then figured out how to make it profitable. And uh, throughout his life, 
uh, he came up with new ideas and new innovations uh, to improve things. He was just not someone, he was very, very competitive. Uh, one of his former uh, colleagues at uh, his ship line, Sealand Service, uh, told me in an interview that uh, you couldn't go uh, pheasant hunting with him without him wanting to bet who'd get the first, who'd get the most, who'd get the biggest. And I think that speaks volumes about a man who was simply very competitive and liked that aspect of business. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a little curious when just to sort of like dive slightly deeper into that point you made about uh, like shipping containers, uh, some, something like packing goods into a box um, having taken place in like the 1700s. Uh, in terms of the evolution of technology in this industry, and maybe, um, you know, and, and you also mentioned in the book that there had been some automation uh, that had been introduced since World War II, things like forklifts, et cetera. Uh, but in terms of the overall movement of goods, sort of the, the pace and the quantity, uh, rather, I should say the, the quantity and the cost of, of moving goods around, is it fair to say that the way shipping goods on water during the 1950s took place prior to the, the widespread adoption of this shipping container had more in common with the way that goods were shipped in like, you know, 1750 or 1850 than they would have in common with the way goods were shipped like just a few decades later? Well, certainly there'd been uh, technological changes, most notably uh, by the 1950s, all the ships were steam powered, uh, quite unlike in the 1700s. Right. But the, the basics of how you loaded a ship were pretty similar. The uh, technology of the time was what was known as break bulk shipping. Uh, and that is an awkward term, but it means uh, exactly what the term implies, that uh, cargoes were broken up into little pieces. If, if you were, to give you a hypothetical example, if you were uh, working uh, at a factory somewhere in the US Midwest and you were making an engine and you wanted to send that engine off to France, you would have built a crate for it at the factory, a wooden crate. You had a, a group of carpenters who did that sort of thing at the factory. The crate would have been lifted onto a truck. The truck might have taken it to a a railroad depot where it would have been lifted onto a train uh, or it might've been driven straight to the port. Either way, it would arrive near a port and uh, it would, be, would have been put in a warehouse and there it would have waited for a ship. Uh, the ships of the day were pretty small by today's standards. The, the uh, commercial ships of the 1950s were mostly leftover Liberty ships from World War II. When the ship arrived, uh, your cargo would have been removed from the warehouse, taken onto the dock. Uh, if it were in a large crate, it would have been lifted by a winch into the hold of a ship. If it were something small, it would have been put together with other pieces of cargo onto a board and the board would have been lifted into the hold of the ship. And then in the hold of the ship, each of those individual items would have been pushed into place. Uh, 
So uh, the ship was loaded really item by item. Uh, a typical general cargo ship crossing the Atlantic in the first half of the 1950s would carry roughly 200,000 separate items. And so each of those had to be loaded individually onto the ship and then removed individually from the ship at the other end of the voyage. But the ship could spend a week or more in port being loaded. It could spend a week or more at the other end of the trip being discharged. So this was a very arduous, time-consuming process, and it was pretty labor-intensive. There were thousands upon thousands of dock workers in major port cities who were needed to move all of this cargo when there was a ship in port. So transporting freight, particularly internationally, was very costly. It was unreliable. It was slow. And as a result of that, a lot of things that could have been traded weren't traded. Trade, uh, the cost of, of trade was basically a barrier to trade. Um, when you say things that could have been traded weren't traded, do you mean specific items because of the, the design of, of this like, shipping process? Or was it simply because, you know, people saying, hey, this is costly. I don't want to, um, you know, send my goods. The cost of shipping uh, was so high compared to the value of many goods that it just wasn't worth transporting the goods. Mm. Um, and think of the things that you can get today, just walking into your average supermarket or your average discount store or your neighborhood hardware store. Uh, you can get all kinds of items that were made halfway around the world, and you're paying just a couple of dollars for them in many cases, whether it's a t-shirt uh, or a pair of pliers or a bottle of wine. And you know, th these are very inexpensive items and it makes sense to trade them internationally only because it doesn't cost much to ship them. It was quite different uh, in the 1950s. It cost a lot to ship things. Uh, and uh, so many of these things just didn't get shipped. Yeah, and you mentioned that he had, in forming this business, um, McLean had a, a lot of regulatory hurdles to overcome. I believe a, a trucking company could not also own something like shipping lines and things like that. And so in order to, to get into this, this business, he, he had to restructure his company in, in, in some weird way where it was no longer McLean Trucking. It was like McLean Trust or something like that. It, it, you, you refer to it in the book as something like one of the first leveraged buyouts. What, what exactly, from a financial perspective, was going on there? Well, first off, uh, he, he tried to buy uh, existing uh, ship lines. Uh, he needed to do this because domestic shipping in the United States was regulated like other forms of, of freight transportation. So you couldn't just get a ship and start moving cargo along the coast. You had to have um, permission from the regulator, which was the Interstate Commerce Commission. And the Interstate Commerce Commission thought that it was not right for one entity to own a ship line and also own a truck line with which that ship line might compete. So um, McLean was ordered to divest himself of the ship line. Uh, he uh, purchased first a very, uh, excuse me, it was McLean's order to divest himself of the truck line. Uh, 
He purchased first a very small ship line, something uh, called a Pan American steamship, which just had a handful of ships and, and sailed along the US Atlantic coast. And then he tried to purchase a much larger company, a company called Waterman Steamship, which was based in Mobile. And Waterman was one of the larger U.S. ship lines. Uh, this was a, a complicated deal. Uh, he uh, didn't have the money to do this. Uh, a banker named Walter Riston at First National City Bank of New York uh, helped him out. Riston later became the chairman of uh, what was then known as Citibank and was one of the most influential bankers in the entire world. But this was in the early days of his career. And uh, he helped uh, McLean complete the purchase of Waterman Steamship, which gave him access to a lot of routes, a lot of vessels and uh, a shipyard as well. So uh, he, he had to deal with that. And then he had to deal with this uh, issue of uh, what rates should be charged. The, the, the part of the notion of transport regulation was that markets should be stable. So uh, regulators wanted competition between ships and, and railroads, between ships and truck lines, between railroads and truck lines, but they didn't want too much competition. They wanted right. no upset in the industry. And here, McLean was coming with a technology that everybody thought was going to upset the industry. And so there was a lot of resistance to uh, initiating this. Uh, eventually, uh, he and his company, which he renamed Sealand Service, had to turn their attention mainly to serving Puerto Rico, uh, because that was a route on which there was no competition for trucks or trains, and, and the regulators uh, didn't care. So uh, in, in the late 1950s, the main business of, of Sealand service was uh, sailing between the mainland United States and Puerto Rico. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of wild how, from a regulatory perspective, the industry was basically designed to resist disruption. And McLean had to go through all these like legal and financial maneuvers to get around that. It's... Um, it's kind of like a, a, in a weird way, a story of like perseverance in the face of that. Oh, sure. Uh, absolute perseverance. I mean, Congress was very clear in regulating transportation. The law said specifically that uh, the regulators should encourage competition. Uh, but it also said specifically that the regulators should promote stability uh, in these industries. And as you know, competition and, and stability uh, are uh, not necessarily compatible. And so that's what the regulators were trying to do through this period. And, and McLean had to find his way around them. Was there like, a, a, do you think they had a good reason to want stability in these markets? Well, first of all, they had been directed to legally by, by uh, Congress. The uh, idea here was going back to the early days of rail regulation in the 1880s, that 
uh, railroads were often monopoly providers of, of transportation service, and so they needed to be closely watched. And the regulator's job was to make sure that the railroad could earn a return on investment, but that it didn't exploit its customers, the shippers. And that sort of logic was taken over into a regulation of a domestic uh, ocean shipping. And it was taken over into a regulation of domestic trucking when uh, interstate trucking became a business in the 1930s. So that's what the regulators were tasked with doing. But the thing is, uh, a lot of the, the regulations just didn't make much sense. Uh, uh, typically, uh, for example, a, a truck line had to apply for permission to serve a particular route. It had to apply for permission to carry specific commodities along that route. Uh, it couldn't just go wherever it wanted to, to uh, send a truck. And uh, a, a truck line would file a proposal and then some other truck line would come in and oppose it saying that the public convenience and necessity didn't require a new competitor on this particular route. And the Interstate Commerce Commission would then conduct hearings and determine whether a new competitor was justified. McLean went through much the same thing with his ship line. It did uh, was a really a, a public need for an additional service that was carrying freight down the coast. That's why he had to buy an existing company because he never would have been able to get permission to start a new one. But it was just, uh, there was a very heavy uh, regulatory overlay and that kind of stifled innovation in transportation. One of the other things that I really like about this story is the fact that McLean feels like um, feels like it almost this invention, uh, or sorry, not invention, but this this change in in the process of of shipping. It, it feels like it almost could have been pushed by anybody. It and and perhaps that's not true. But there's just the fact that this seems like such a simple but dramatic change uh, that was just like waiting to be uh, foisted upon us. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm asking because I, I don't know if that's true, but would you describe this invention or this, uh, this change in retrospect as low hanging fruit uh, or, or does it only look that way now? Oh, it only looks that way now. This was an exceedingly difficult process. It didn't make much money for, for a number of years, and there were a lot of obstacles to overcome. Yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, and that, that certainly becomes clear in uh, the telling a story through your book. And I had to have a successful business person to, to engineer this change in the process. But it, it does... And, and all the regulatory hurdles, et cetera, that he had to bump against. Um, and you also mentioned the fact that the, since this was not necessarily invention, uh, there, there's no way he could have, uh, uh, you know, patented his design. So the, the McLean family gets a, a small payout every time a shipping container is used or anything like that. Um, what exactly, since you, you talked about how it wasn't particularly um, profitable uh, in the beginning. What, um, 
you mentioned the Vietnam War in the book being a, a big turning point in the widespread adoption. Uh, what what was the story there? Had, had the shipping container really not taken off up to that point? Well, first, let me correct a misperception here. There were a lot of patents here because there were okay. a lot of things that needed to be invented for the container to be used in a sensible way. Uh, just to, to give you one example, uh, in the early days, a container would be lifted off the ship and put onto a flatbed truck. And then workers had to uh, climb over it and chain it to the truck so that the container didn't shift while it was being transported. It took a fair amount of time and labor to just get a truck ready for a carriage of a container. Uh, so one of McLean's engineers invented a particular kind of truck chassis that a container would fit on. And it's designed so that it's not particularly, it's not precisely flat. It has uh, a certain uh, slope at a particular place. So the container will slide very easily onto the chassis. Uh, very important technology. Uh, nothing that the public is aware of, but uh, it made it much cheaper to load a container onto a truck. The uh, cranes that were used to lift containers in the beginning were the kinds of cranes you would see in shipyards or perhaps at construction sites. Uh, a, a, a crane that could swing around uh, 360 degrees and the, the crane dangled chains and then dock workers would take those chains and hook them to eyes on the top of the container. And then they'd have to get off the container. The crane would lift the container, swing it around, put it onto the ship, and then somebody else would have to clamber aboard the container and unhook all of those chains. Uh, that's not how modern containers work. So again, one of McLean's engineers invented something called the, the spreader, which is basically a frame the size of a container that will automatically fit into holes in the corners of the container so that the container can be lifted easily. There were a ton of inventions like that, all necessary to make the container work. Uh, McLean and his engineer, Keith Tantlinger, had um, ownership of some of these patents. There were other companies that followed McLean into the container shipping business and they all had to invent their own. So you had different sized containers, you had uh, different designs for truck chassis, you had uh, different types of cranes and different ways of lifting. Uh, you had some containers that were designed to be lifted with forklifts. Uh, you had uh, containers that had uh, the holes in the corners, but in different places from the ones on McLean's containers. And so everybody was kind of doing their own thing and, and also then making containers of different sizes. So by the early 1960s, uh, this was a fairly confused industry. Uh, a, a key aspect of the development of the industry was the agreement on standards for shipping containers. Uh, this is really about the most boring thing you could imagine, but 
the, it was the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy, had, the, the U.S. government had lent money for construction of many of these vessels, and it had the right to claim them in time of war. And the Navy said, what are we going to do with a bunch of ships that carry containers, but each one carries a different size? How can we use that to mount a logistics operation in time of war? And as a result of that, uh, uh, several groups domestically began talking about container standards in the late 1950s. And, and those discussions went international in the early 1960s. These people spent years and years sitting around smoke-filled conference rooms talking about things like how many internal supports should there be in a container? How thick should the walls be? How should the doors close? What should the length be? What should the width be? And it really took almost a decade of negotiation uh, involving people in the maritime industry and the railroad industry and the container manufacturing industry and government to reach a, a standard uh, so that everybody was handling the same sort of container. And so the same sort of container could be handled anywhere in the world. It seems like war kind of has that sort of forcing mechanism uh, or, or disaster in general has this powerful effect of, of shaking things up that, uh, and, and accelerating developments that may otherwise have taken much longer, like COVID, for instance, and remote work. Uh, is that kind of similar to what was going on here with Vietnam War and the shipping container? The container business was a totally U.S. domestic business for its first decade. It was only in 1966 that the first ship carrying only containers sailed internationally. And the lack of standards was the reason for that. The, there was a lot of money that was interested in going into container shipping and nobody was interested in investing until there was a standard. The, the capital was there, but the investors said, if we buy the wrong ship, if we build a ship that's designed to carry 24 foot containers and the standard becomes 35 feet, then we've got a ship we can't use. And so it was really only after there was agreement on the size of a standard shipping container and on uh, other aspects of that container that money started to pour into the industry. Once it did, container shipping grew very rapidly. Uh, in Starting in 1966, a container ship sailed between the United States and Northern Europe and the United Kingdom. Uh, the traditional shipping business died out within two or three years uh, once the container came in because it was just so much uh, more efficient to ship by container. But there were a lot of people who argued that well, container shipping might work across the Atlantic, but probably not across the Pacific. It's uh, too far. Uh, the ship spends a lot more time at sea compared to the time it spends at the docks. So the, the time savings in loading and unloading matter less. And so all these experts said, you know, container shipping across the Pacific probably isn't going to happen. Uh, with the Vietnam War, 
the United States had a real logistical mess in Vietnam. There was cargo piled up all over the place. And McLean uh, persuaded the Pentagon to try container shipping, which it had never done. Uh, he won a contract to use uh, seven container ships to ferry goods between the West Coast and Vietnam and really proved that container shipping uh, was an effective way of managing supply chains and would cost a lot less money and would also resolve many of the uh, pileups of cargo uh, on the docks in Saigon. And, and that's really what opened the way then to uh, the growth of trade between the United States and, and Asia. Uh, in those days, of course, China was still pretty much closed to the world. Uh, McLean's contract uh, paid him to carry cargo between the states and Vietnam. Uh, there was no cargo to carry on the way back. And uh, McLean told his staff, uh, well, suppose we stop off in Japan. And they did. Sealand service began carrying cargo between Japan and the United States and other companies joined. And this is really what led to the huge growth in uh, imports of electronics, in particular from Japan, starting in the late 1960s. Well, why did that exactly lead to the, the growth of electronics in Japan in the 1960s? When container shipping became available to Japan, uh, uh, because Malcolm McLean's ships stopped off in Japan uh, on the way back from Vietnam to the United States. And they took cargo uh, at much lower prices uh, to the US West Coast. And all of a sudden there was a very efficient way for Japanese manufacturers to export to the United States. Uh, at this point in time, uh, Japan was just building its electronics industry and Japanese stereos and television sets started pouring into the United States in a way that probably would not have occurred without the container. I, I see. And maybe we've kind of touched on this through the, uh, you know, the conversation, but maybe it's worth asking explicitly. Uh, what exactly about the shipping container, what, these cost savings, where exactly did they come from? Was it the, the labor costs? Was it the fact that you could reuse it? Um, what made it so much cheaper? There were a, a number of different things. Uh, obviously, the labor cost savings were a, a major piece of it. Uh, handling cargo on the docks before the container had been very expensive. You could have a couple of hundred workers trying to uh, discharge or, or load a, a single vessel, and it could take days. And, and so there was a lot of labor cost and, and uh, containerization turned this into a matter of a few hours in many cases with, with significantly fewer workers. That was one source of saving. Uh, another is that there was a serious problem of theft uh, in the break bulk shipping days. Uh, some types of cargo simply disappeared. Uh, there was a lot of wine and liquor shipped internationally, uh, high-end wines, especially from France, uh, scotch whiskey, those sorts of things. And uh, theft on the docks was a big problem. Uh, the cargo really uh, put an end to that. It made it much harder to steal things. Uh, the re reliability of the uh, ships improved because the ship owners had a much better idea of how long it would take to load a vessel. So, 
schedules were adhered to. You could count on your goods arriving on time, and that cut, cut costs for shippers. Uh, all in all, the time that it would have taken to send an item of cargo from, say, the U.S. Midwest to the interior of Europe fell from several weeks to a couple of weeks. There's a huge time saving, and, and that's money. So all of these factors really made it much more efficient to send a cargo of in containers than by break bulk shipping. And as the shipping container became more and more uh, widely used, especially in international trade, how did this, I mean, the, there were cities um, whose you know, ports were basically designed around the old way of doing things. Uh, there were people who, you know, talk about labor costs. There were people whose, you know, decades in the industry was, you know, unloading and loading ships in the old, the, you know, in the old manner of, you know, you had a bunch of items one by one. Um, what were some of the the downstream um, cultural? and political effects of this change. We, we hear a lot of talk today about like technology eliminating jobs. Um, I mean, in cities like uh, New York, et cetera, uh, that were big port cities that, you know, uh, kind of saw the center of gravity shift away from them. Um, were there any, uh, you know, whispers of rebellion against this? The social effects of the container are quite massive. You had tens of thousands of dock workers in cities like New York and London and San Francisco and Hamburg and Rotterdam. And most of those workers were no longer needed. Uh, in, in many of these cities, there were communities of dock workers located near the docks so people could walk to work. Well, as the jobs on the docks disappeared, those people didn't need to be there anymore. Uh, in the United States, particularly uh, in uh, the Northeast and uh, in uh, San Francisco, most of the dock workers came out okay. They got money in return for having lost their jobs. Uh, in, in some cases in the East Coast, uh, they received checks regularly for many years from the union of even though they didn't have work on the docks. So uh, they no longer needed to live near the docks. And these waterfront communities really dried up. People moved away. It was made worse by the fact that many manufacturers had located near the docks uh, for ease of importing or exporting goods. They could move their goods very simply from the factory to a ship. Well, that was no longer necessary with containers because it was pretty easy to get your goods to the ship. And so it was no longer important to have your factory near the waterfront. And many of these factories uh, simply closed and moved away. The factories were typically multi-story buildings that had been built decades ago. And now you could build uh, a, a more efficient single-story building 100 miles from the docks and just put your shipments into a container and uh, truck them to the waterfront. So 
thousands upon thousands of jobs disappeared in the industries related to the port. And then think of all of the jobs that were there serving the port in some way, whether it was uh, the truckers who um, ha handled the cargo moving in and out of the port, or whether it was the bartender whose bar served dock workers when their shifts were done. Uh, all of these things really dried up. And you saw industries just vanish. And, and in places like South Brooklyn or East London in, in Great Britain, there was nothing. Uh, the jobs just vanished. The people left. Incomes plunged. And it took 30 years or more for those communities to recover. Uh, the container had really totally changed the reasons for those places to be. And they had a hard time coming back. And why did McLean ultimately uh, sort of sell out or cash in, however you want to put it, um, his business? Uh, he kept getting uh, offered a um, more and more money for Sealand. Uh, Sealand was a publicly traded company. It had shareholders. And in the 1960s, people had this notion that container shipping was a growth industry. It was going to be kind of like Xerox, for example. Xerox was a, a growth company back in the day. And the idea was... Um, that container shipping would be like that. It was a technology business. Uh, and uh, so a lot of money poured in and, and one of the companies that was interested was uh, RJ Reynolds, a cigarette company. Uh, and um, so RJR earned a lot of money from selling cigarettes. It didn't really want to um, invest more of that money in tobacco. And it, um, it was looking for other options and it thought it was buying into a fast growth company when it, it bought a ship line. It, uh, so McLean took a lot of money and uh, sold out. He went on the board of RJ Reynolds, but RJR uh, ran the company. And this turned out to be a disastrous decision for R.J. Reynolds uh, and um, not a wise decision for McLean. McLean didn't like working for somebody else's corporation. He thought it was not, um, it was not fun. He had too many meetings, no entrepreneurship. People were just uh, uh, buried in the bureaucracy. So he sold his stake. And uh, RJR uh, regretted being in the container shipping business because one thing about container shipping uh, is it's very volatile. And here you had investors who purchased shares in a tobacco company because they thought there'd be steady demand for tobacco. And instead, they saw that their earnings were bouncing up and down like a rubber ball because earnings in the shipping industry did that. So RJR eventually sold itself, uh, sold out of, of Sealand, sold Sealand off. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I think, you know, 
again, another thing we've kind of already addressed, but maybe it helps to be explicit is, so when we talk about why uh, the shipping containers had effects that it's had of things like just-in-time delivery and, uh, you know, fast fashion, et cetera, uh, just the fact that it's, you know, as you mentioned early on, being able to buy a hammer for $2 that was made halfway around the world is, is pretty remarkable. Um, it, is this is this mostly just because that like the reduction in costs w- was was like a just a step function downwards that had such a huge impact that you know like um, better forklifts, for example, wouldn't have been able to achieve on their own. In other words, could there could this change have come at you know some kind of gradient like? Uh, you reduce costs a little bit, you get a little bit more trade, uh, international trade, a little bit more goods are now shipped. Or did there need to come sort of a, a, a tipping point in the reduction of costs in order to, to bring this sort of deluge that we're experiencing now? Well, the, the, in, the greatest insight that Malcolm McLean had was that Containerization wasn't about the ship. It was about the system. And the container shipping wouldn't really make any sense unless there were changes throughout the freight transportation system uh, around the container. So this was not a small venture. Okay, you needed uh, truckers able to handle containers efficiently. You needed railroads that could interchange containers efficiently. You needed ports that specialized in container freight. Uh, All of these things had to change. So this was quite different from making a small change on the margin. One of the reasons many previous attempts to introduce containerization had failed is that the people concerned were trying to limit it to their company. They thought that there was something exclusive here that could bring profits to their particular railroad or their particular ship line. And McLean saw that this was really not going to be a viable business unless everybody did it and there was a standard way of doing it. So uh, I don't think that marginal changes in in shipping technology would have achieved this at all. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, The the other thing I wanted to ask is about shipping containers today and the, the sort of supply chain crises we've been facing, which, um, you know, among other things, have been driving inflation. And uh, shipping containers fit into this. And I, I'm, I have a friend of mine who has like a family business that does a lot of shipping between China and the US. And I, I want to give you his take on it, uh, on what's going on here. And I want to see if, if you find this to be accurate. Um, basically, he says that before COVID, there was this, you know, like healthy circulation of shipping containers, that things would go from China to the West and back, etc. Um, and then post COVID, um, you know, things shut down so that you had a bunch of shipping containers that were sent to America or sent to China that just Kind of got stuck there, and they they weren't recycled. They the the flow had stopped, 
It was like having a heart attack. And now we're trying to get the blood pumping again. And there's literally just a bunch of shipping containers that are sitting in ports that need to be unloaded and uh, recycled. Um, and, And that in turn is driving up these costs um is that is that like roughly what's going on not really that's a piece of what's going on yeah 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 what what happened with covid is that governments around the world and central banks around the world pumped money into their economies to avoid a depression they uh, provided low interest rates and grants and loans and all sorts of stimulus so that people would spend money. And at the same time, the pandemic made it very difficult to spend money on those types of services. You couldn't go out for a restaurant meal. You couldn't take a vacation trip. Your child's daycare center was probably closed. Many of the services that people formerly bought were no longer available. So people had all this money and access to more at low interest rates. They couldn't spend it on services. So what did they do? They purchased goods. And we had an unexpected surge in goods imports into the United States and many other countries. Certainly, there had been no expectation of this. there was not the capacity to handle it. And the capacity problems were not just in the ports by any stretch. We had many retailers, for example, whose warehouses were filled to overflowing. They wanted to have this merchandise so they could sell it to customers. And if they didn't have any more room in the distribution center, they would just leave it in the container out in, in, in the yard by the distribution center until there was room. Uh, containers can make good warehouses. And so you had a lot of people using containers as warehouses, whether outside distribution centers or inside the port itself. Uh, It generally was taking longer for um, shippers to pick up their cargo when it arrived uh, at the port. Why? Because they didn't have any place to put it. So they just left the box there for an extra week or two. And then you had problems on the other end. I'm talking here about imports from Asia and specifically from China. China closed a number of the ports uh, due to COVID for various periods of time. Those ports had thousands upon thousands of containers in them waiting to be loaded onto vessels. And they were just sitting there. They were not uh, going anywhere. The uh, ship lines... uh, couldn't get their ships loaded because the port was closed. So there were a lot of things that were were stuck throughout this system. Uh, And and that's really due to macroeconomic policy. The macroeconomic policy was successful in averting a depression. There's no question about it, but it did lead to these supply chain problems. And that's had a significant effect on inflation around the world. I I see. it sounds like what you're saying, just to sort of re- repeat this back to you, if I got it, is people had a lot of money or, 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 you know, the economy was being juiced by these governments during COVID and they couldn't spend it 
on things they would normally spend it on. So they just wanted physical things. And so the demand for these physical things being brought in by these shipping containers uh, surged. And then you had this problem of people using, instead of shipping containers being circulated back and forth, a lot of them were being sort of like stuck and used as warehouses. Uh, and then simultaneously in China, there, you had all these shipping containers that weren't being um, pushed out either. And so th this is one part of, you know, uh, supply chains sort of going amok, correct? Uh, yes, this is, a, uh, this is really a story of, of government's economic policies, which were designed for a good purpose. How do we stay out of a depression uh, during the pandemic? But they did lead to these other effects that totally fouled up supply chains and left containers uh, out of reach. And these are slowly being fixed at this point in time, mostly because the world economy is slowing down. Consumers now can spend on services, so we've seen good spending slump. Uh, there's less demand to um, uh, import uh, the kinds of products that move in containers. So uh, these supply chain uh, snafus are, are being uh, dealt with, but uh, it's a, a gradual process to get things back to normal. And there's still interruptions. There's still cases where uh, cities are being uh, cut off or ports are being cut off in China. So a trade is still being interrupted. Uh, there's still cases where um, uh, ship line sailings are being canceled because their vessels are in the wrong place because it took too long to get a ship loaded. And so those kinds of things will take a while to rectify. Um, it, what is, as we start wrapping up here, what, what is the future of the shipping container? I, I mean, has its uh, utility already been maxed out? Uh, are there any more innovations to squeeze out of this? Uh, this thing, or um, do, do you anticipate? I mean, it's hard to say if, if you know, prior to Malcolm McLean, uh, it probably would be hard to predict uh, this change in shipping. But um, do, you, do you foresee the, the shipping industry being technologically, like relatively uh, static for the foreseeable future? Well, that's a whole lot of questions in one place. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Okay, let's maybe I'll, I'll break that down. Um, what's the future of the shipping container? Has it been maxed out utility-wise? Well, let me talk for a minute about the container, and then let me sure. talk for a minute about shipping. Okay? Yes. The, the container itself uh, is, is now obviously uh, very, very widespread, but it's still a dumb box. And there's a lot of interest in making it smart. The idea is that a smart container would have sensors on it, would have a GPS connection, uh, would be able to transmit every few minutes, perhaps, uh, information about its location, uh, its current routing, its uh, temperature, uh, any other information that people might want about it so that the owner of the cargo would have information in real time, um, might be able to learn uh, that it's 
shipment is going to be late, uh, might be able to make changes for on a connecting vessel uh, because it now has more information about where the container is. So there are some ship lines that are moving toward uh, installing these devices on their containers and making their containers smart. Uh, this has a cost. There are many people in the shipping industry who think this is not a viable idea. Um, many shippers don't really care if you're shipping a container full of grain, for example. It's not very time sensitive. Do you really want to pay extra to have a container that transmits to you where your grain is every few minutes? Probably not. Uh, and what happens when the device breaks or falls off? Uh, so there's now a dispute within the shipping industry. There are different points of view about whether it makes sense to have smart containers. And, and that's a debate that will probably go on for the next few years. The uh, container shipping industry itself faces uh, considerable technological challenges, uh, of which the biggest, certainly in the minds of the people who are in the industry, is climate change. Uh, the industry is under a lot of pr pressure to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. In particular, uh, container ship lines do a lot of business with companies that are consumer facing, uh, retailers, makers of consumer goods. And those companies' customers are demanding that they adopt more sustainable strategies. And of course, they're turning to their shippers, uh, their, their ship lines and saying, well, what are you doing to reduce emissions? And the International Maritime Organization, a UN body, is pushing for a dramatic reduction in emissions over the next few years. So the container ship lines are dealing with this. Right now, container ships are fueled by petroleum. Does it make sense to use an alternative fuel? Um, ammonia, perhaps? Uh, methanol? Uh, liquefied natural gas? There are many different ideas, different companies are trying different strategies, but these are big bucks decisions. Uh, it's gonna cost a lot of money to build new vessels that are propelled by something other than petroleum. And perhaps the biggest question facing the industry right now is uh, how does it make this transition? It, this might be a, a really dumb, naive question, but could, could, could you put like solar panels on, on the sides or top of these shipping containers when they're, if they're being exposed in the open air at all? Well, uh, on board a ship, some containers are exposed to the air, but not predictably so. Okay, a container that's loaded on board a ship uh, and in, at the top of the stack now, maybe uh, inside the hold the next time. And besides, you have containers stacked right. one upon another. So if you have something of value atop the container, it might just be crushed. So I don't think solar-powered containers are terribly likely. Fair enough. Um, well, Mark, uh, I, I really I enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed your book. Uh, it's told in, in a very, um, it, it's a great story, I think. It's, it's called the, uh, the Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller and the World Economy Bigger. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. It's been good to be with you. Thank you to Mark Levinson. And thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.